In the desolate caves overlooking the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, offering insights into early Jewish communities and their beliefs. These ancient texts prompt reflection on their connection to the Bible we know today. What did the earliest biblical writers believe about divine inspiration? Were they merely scribes or conscious channels of the divine? Embark with us on a journey that bridges ancient writings to contemporary faith, exploring the intricate dance between history and scripture. Hello everyone, this is What Your Pastor Didn't Tell You. Today I'm on with Dr. Kip Davis. We're going to be talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the, the forgeries. We're going to talk about the 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 authenticity of the Bible. We're going to talk about the reliability. You know, some people have said, it, you know, it proves the Bible right. And other people have said that, you know, it doesn't really help it very much. So we're going to talk about that today. How are you doing today, Dr. Davis? Oh, we're doing very good. How are you? I'm doing great. I... I didn't know awesome. uh, that you were in the, the the cool hip hats, so it's a pleasure to <laughs> get you in your your comfortable environment here. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, can can you <laughs> can you tell people about your background? Uh, you know, obviously the Dead Sea Scrolls, your school experience with the Bible Museum. Uh, you know, don't go into a ton of detail because that could be a long story. But you know, tell just tell people about your background. Sure. So um, my name is Kip Davis. I am a Hebrew Bible scholar and a specialist in early uh, Judaism, early Jewish literature, uh, with a particular focus on the Dead Sea Scrolls. I did my PhD at the University of Manchester under George Brooke, writing on uh, traditions of Jeremiah in uh, Second Temple Judaism. I have had postdocs at um, Trinity Western University and at the University of Achter in these, on the southern coast of Norway, uh, focused on work with uh, actual scrolls fragments. I was part of uh, the project in Norway to publish uh, fragments and artifacts from the private collection belonging to Martin Skoyen. And then I was later asked to help uh, edit and publish the fragments belonging to the Museum of the Bible, uh, which turned out to be forgeries. And I was I was involved in uh, in all of that. So um, I now um, I I have a YouTube channel and I I I do lots of uh, uh, writing and uh, just try and, and, and get uh, scholarship out there about the scrolls, mm -hmm. about the Bible, about early Judaism uh, for the general public. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I found a lot of value in your videos, which is a big reason Thank why, you. why I've had you on here. You know, if I want to know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, I'm probably going to go to you. Uh, there's a lot of bias from a lot of people that, you know, they just want to prove the Bible right or whatever. Um, but, you know, as Christians, we, you know, I think we should be concerned with the truth, you know, just humans in general, we should be concerned with the truth. So um, that, I'm really excited to have you on here to, to help us understand the topic better. So what would you say is the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls? So, um, and just to give you a little bit of background of what we're talking about here, your, your, your audience, the Dead Sea Scrolls yeah. are a collection of Jewish 
uh, manuscripts, mostly written in Hebrew, but there are a number written in Aramaic and a few in Greek. Uh, they date between the early 2nd, possibly the late 3rd century BCE, all the way up to uh, the, um, the, the Jewish war, the, the, the destruction of the uh, Jerusalem temple. Um, in the, uh, uh, the scrolls that are associated with, with a, uh, an archaeological site on the, west, on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea known as Qumran, uh, these stem from 11 caves within a one and a half kilometer radius of the ruins of Qumran. Uh, and this collection, uh, which is believed to have been um, either written by and or um, collected by the people who lived at this site, it comprises somewhere between 900 to 1,000 hmm. individual manuscripts. Uh, these are highly significant because they represent far and away the earliest uh, collection of any Jewish literature that we have of any kind, hmm. anywhere. Um, they're incredibly important because they were discovered um, within Israel, within Palestine. There are plenty of Hebrew Bible manuscripts and, and other Jewish manuscripts that have come out of places like the, uh, the Cairo uh, Geniza, which is a very important uh, collection of, of uh, Jewish manuscripts that, you know, were discovered in Cairo. This is a collection of manuscripts that was discovered in the land of Israel. Um, they, because of the, the date of them, they, they represent um, a, a really invaluable window into this critical time period uh, in the, uh, the formative years of um, what we now understand to be rabbinic Judaism and also the formative years of Christianity. Prior to our discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest copies that we had of the Hebrew text of the Bible dated to only about 1,000 or 900. There were a couple of scraps, one uh, such being the, the Nash papyrus uh, is is a, a papyrus fragment that was discovered in the 19th century, which contains text from uh, the Ten Commandments, both uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, uh, the two versions sort of mixed together. But, I, I mean, other than that, there was nothing from, you know, prior to the 9th or the 10th century uh, CE or AD. So with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, among those 900 or 1,000 manuscripts, there's... Uh, 200 to 250. I, I have put the count at 233 individual manuscripts of texts that do appear in your Hebrew Bibles, in your Old Testament. Um, and these all represent the earliest copies of these texts by an order of a thousand years. Uh, so it's a, it's a tremendously significant find from uh, from a text critical perspective in terms of, of helping us to understand uh, the text of the Hebrew Bible, um, along with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls have come questions by scholars about such things as, you know, the, the, the shape of scripture and the nature of scripture in and around the time of Jesus, uh, the nature of Judaism 
in and around the time of Jesus. Um, the, uh, the origins of Christianity, is, is there a connection between the group uh, of, of uh, Jews who, who became followers of Jesus and this collection of manuscripts? Uh, the community who wrote and collected the Dead Sea Scrolls has been identified by scholars with a particular Jewish sect known as the Essenes. We know about the Essenes from both Josephus and from Philo. And uh, this was uh, an elite group. So these were, these were um, educated people. Most of them were probably disenfranchised, uh, disillusioned priests um who who were frustrated with the uh corruption and and uh the bureaucracy and the politics within the jerusalem temple establishment and the Hmm. the sadakites or or the sadducees um this is where most of the essenes came from but uh they were they appear to have been an ascetic group of some sort they one of the mandates of the people who wrote and collected the dead sea scrolls was that um the end of the world was was upon us it was happening any day now the last days were were coming yahweh was going to come in and vanquish all the enemies of israel which you know at this point was mostly the romans but also other jews that they disagreed with um (laughs) And uh, he was going to establish his, you know, a, a, a kingdom of peace and prosperity for the new Israel. Um, but they believed that uh, they needed to go out into the wilderness in order to wait for this to happen. They were a, you know, they, they, were, they were pacifists. Um, they were nonviolent. That being said, they harbored these rather vivid violent fantasies about all the terrible things that God was going to do to everybody that they didn't like. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's the Dead Sea Scrolls in a nutshell. I have a, I have a series, uh, that I'm going through right now, a long form series called the Dead Sea Scrolls unapologetically, where I'm attempting to just provide, a a, a an in-depth introduction to this incredibly, interesting collection of literature one of the things that i'm i'm uh really focused on doing in this series is to help people understand that while the scrolls are really important because of the insight that they provide to us about the shape and the history of the so-called biblical text this still only represents about uh you know 20 to 30 percent of the entire collection uh, there's tons of other literature among mm-hmm. the Dead Sea Scrolls, texts mm-hmm. that we knew of already beforehand, like First Enoch or like Ben Sira or the Book of Jubilees or uh, the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. But all of these written in, you know, their their original languages, either Hebrew or Aramaic. But then there's piles of other really interesting pieces of literature that we we had never seen before. Tons of uh, psalms and poems and songs 
individual rules written by the community about their their ideals for how to be a um, a good uh, a good upstanding Jew. Um, there's calendars. These people were absolutely obsessed uh, with with correctly calculating the times and the seasons the people who <laughs> wrote and collected the dead sea scrolls were not like um most jews who were observing a lunar calendar at this time mm -hmm. the people who wrote and collected the dead sea scrolls were convinced that you know god mandated a solar calendar and he wrote this into the fabric of the cosmos so they were very very serious about this uh there's there's tons and tons of interesting uh different types of texts hmm. in the dead sea scrolls not just bible yeah that that's crazy so you know obviously you know there's a, there's a lot of people that are going to say like hey you know the, the dead sea scrolls they look exactly like you know the, the Masoretic text the previous text we had before and you know that proves the bible's authenticity so um you know, we'll talk about maybe the negatives or, you know, what people get confused about. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about, I guess, um, you know, how, how well would you say, like, what are the pros there? How well did, what are the good ways that it matched up with what we previously had? <laughs> oh, this is, this is a question. This is a question asked by an evangelical uh, or, <laughs> or at least, a, or at least a, a, a Christian. Um, so, uh I think what you're asking me is, um, <laughs> and this is this is the question that that many Christian apologists will come to the Dead Sea Scrolls with: is do they uh, do they confirm the stability <laughs> and the veracity of the text of the Bible? Mm -hmm. And a you know, in many respects, absolutely yes. One of the things that was discovered among the Dead Sea Scrolls, among those 233 copies of biblical texts uh, are texts that look virtually identical to uh, the Hebrew scripture as we have it preserved in what's called the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text is, is the text that uh, was inherited by the uh, rabbis who came out of the, the, the movement of the Pharisaic Jews. Uh, and this is the text that they they pass down through the medieval period, um, and it's become the the standard text. One of the things that we we discover within the Dead Sea Scrolls is lots of manuscripts that look just like the Masoretic text. Um, what what many scholars would say is is you know a testament to a faithful preservation of this particular text. So. And um, the, according to um, Josephus, and for a long time, the, the majority theory among scholars with regards to the Masoretic text was that this was definitely the oldest form of the text, the purest form of the text. <laughs> um, according to Josephus, there was a, there was a copy of the Torah that was, that was like the um, like the authorized version of the Torah that was kept in the temple uh, and, and guarded there. 
from the time of Josephus would tell you from the time of day of Solomon, right? Of course. Um, so, and, and the assumption has always been that the Masoretic text is, you know, the, the authoritative authorized version mm. of, um, the Bible that was, that was collected in the temple. Mm. Maybe, uh, we just, we don't know, but, uh, for a long time, uh, textual critics of the Hebrew Bible uh, were really focused on this idea of an ur text of a of of an original text from which other forms of the text emerged, and it was thought that the ur text is something that looked very very much like the Masoretic text, and we discover numerous copies of the Masoretic text um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that about Josephus. Of course, Ooh. it's not like he has mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a way to verify that, right? <laughs> well, and he was he was a Pharisee, right? So he was a he was a well connected um, Pharisee mm-hmm. uh, who was for for his lifetime up until the Jewish War was certainly um, very closely connected to to the, the the priesthood in the temple mm-hmm. in Jerusalem. Um, so I mean he he certainly he certainly knows he certainly knows things, but then mm-hmm. b- by the same token he's 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 pushing an agenda as well. Um, and I I am not entirely convinced that uh, that everything he tells us about the shape of the biblical text uh, up to the time of the destruction of Jerusalem is is entirely mm. accurate. Interesting. Okay, maybe we can dive into that. So uh, that that's I guess the the good part. What would you say is the the part where you know you you see the Masoretic text? You know what we original what we had for a long long time, and then how the Dead Sea Scrolls might differ from that. I'll say I have to say one more thing here before Go we get for into it. this. Uh, so do. you should be really happy about the fact that I'm 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 really focused on on giving you guys the good news first. <laughs> um, the other thing that we discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls is that uh, there were copies of virtually every single text um, from the Hebrew Bible from the Old Testament, except for the Book of Esther. Um, there were no copies of Nehemiah found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. However, it's widely assumed that they had at least one or maybe two copies of Nehemiah because at this time, as far as we can tell, Ezra and Nehemiah were collected together uh, as, a, as a single document. And we have a, a handful of fragments from, I believe it's two manuscripts of Ezra. Um, something that maybe people, uh, don't have a clear sense of is that at this time, you know, the, the, the early, the, the last few centuries of, uh, the, the, um, uh, pre-Roman period in the first, uh, century of the common era, um, individual books, of the Bible were circulated in individual scrolls. So when scholars find uh, fragments, there's literally tens of thousands of individual fragments 
um, that we have been working hard to painstakingly reconstruct into what a manuscript might have looked like, actually. So this behind me here is an mm -hmm. example of, of exactly what I'm talking about. These are fragments mm -hmm. from a manuscript of uh, the Book of Psalms. Uh, and I have... I have, you know, carefully examined and situated them based on what I think, you know, the original text looked like. And, you know, all the black stuff is is everything that's missing, right? This is mm -hmm. this is what most of the text of the Dead Sea Scrolls look like. Um, so all that to say, when we have a handful of fragments that belong to, you know, a manuscript, like belong together, we can assume that that was you know, a scroll on its own at one point. So hmm. there were copies of, as I said, every text from Genesis through uh, to Chronicles by way of the, uh, uh, the Jewish system or from Genesis through to Malachi by way of the, the Christian system for organizing uh, the literature, except for the book of Esther. Cool. Um, uh, before you get now, to actually answer the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you you mentioned something. Uh, what were they stored in? Were they just a bunch of pots? Were they oh, like lying in so a cave? There's a couple of different things. Uh, yes and yes. Um, so the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were discovered in these rather distinctive large uh, clay jars. Um, and they were extremely well preserved because they were inside these jars, inside a a cave that was pitch black. So <laughs> the, the, the enemy of uh, ancient manuscripts, the, the, the absolute bane of their existence is uh, moisture and light. So they were mm. preserved within these very dry caves uh, mm. that had, had no, no light in them inside these jars. Um, now, not all the scrolls were stored in jars. And I think there's there's some ongoing discussion among scholars about uh, about the nature of each individual cave. That's the other thing we need to we need to to grapple with here is is not it, it appears that not all the caves serve the same function. Uh, it was originally thought that that this group that that lived at this this site in Qumran when the Romans were coming from Jerusalem. Uh, in the year 70 on their way down to Masada uh, they they basically stopped at uh, at the site at Qumran and they they burned it down uh, the people who were living there saw the Roman legions coming and so they mm -hmm. quickly grabbed whatever they could and they fled they took a bunch of this stuff and they stashed it in caves in an effort to keep it from the Romans I don't know. Um, I don't know how much I, I believe all of that. Uh, I think I think maybe that explains some of what we find in the caves. But there's a couple uh -huh. of the caves, Cave One in particular, Cave Eleven in particular, where we found the jars. Um, some scholars have have speculated more. I think uh, pretty clearly, reasonably, that these might have been something like uh, ancient Genizas or ancient. Uh, burial um, areas for retired manuscripts, manuscripts that 
you no longer use, but are too valuable and too sacred to huh. just dispose of. Um, now, some of the other caves uh, look like they might have, have been uh, stashes, hmm. uh, caches of, of manuscript for safekeeping. Uh, perhaps the most important cave, Cave 4, where out of this collection of 900 or 1,000 manuscript, 50% of these were found in one place that were found in K4. K4 is literally located within 100 meters of the site of Qumran. Uh, there are, um, it, it's a man-made cave. So it was, it was carved out of the limestone by people. Um, and it's inside the cave uh they've discovered um uniform looking holes and divots on the walls that uh, archaeologists have speculated look like they could have accommodated some sort of shelving units hmm. so it looks like this might have been some sort of uh depository or a library um where they collected and kept individual scrolls on mm -hmm. shelves um so they would have you know they would have in in this case they would have just been stored out in the open on a shelf um you know the uh the names of individual uh manuscripts would be uh written on the on the outside so you just you know and you go in there and you you look and you can you can see the names of of the text that you're looking for and you just grab it and Way you go. <laughs> so that's awesome. No, yeah, just, it's it's very cool. I can't imagine, you know, putting these like really great, like you know, the biblical, you know, the biblical text that you know they saw, you know, or even the the non biblical texts or whatever that means, right? The the religious text they they found it so special and they're like, we'll just throw it in a cave. Hmm. That's so fascinating to me yeah yeah it is and i think this this does raise another question though and and maybe this is uh this is where we we start talking about um about some of the bad news um <laughs> so uh if if you watch my series on the dead sea scrolls the third video in my series is titled what is a biblical text anyways mm. um and it, it this is in my opinion one of the central questions when it comes to examining and evaluating what's there in the Dead Sea Scrolls, because they did not, um, they did not identify what they understood to be Bible. They didn't have one. It's certainly not a Bible in the way that uh, we think of the Bible. They had these individual texts that they understood to be important, to be authoritative, um, clearly sacred in many respects. Um, one of the, the, the various ways that, uh, that scholars, because they, they didn't have a list of, of what they considered to be in or to be out, um, scholars have devised various ways of determining what uh, the people who wrote and collected the scrolls understood to be authoritative or some form of scripture, although this tends to, to be a bit of an anachronistic term when applied to uh, the period of the first century BC or the first century CE. 
So uh, one of the things that they do is they look at the, the numbers. How many copies of this particular text do they have? How many copies of this particular text? And we see some fairly interesting things. Uh, they, they had tons of copies of Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, um, Isaiah, and the book of the Psalms. The reason this is quite interesting is because these are all the same texts from which the New Testament quotes more than any other uh, text from the Hebrew Bible. So it looks like they were all reading the same sorts of things. Um, now, having said that, there were other texts that they had many copies of that are not in our Bibles. They had many copies of the books of Enoch. They had many copies of something called the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs. They had many copies of this text called the Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice, and many copies of the War Scroll, and many copies of the Chodayot, or the Thanksgiving Hymn. So it looks like if we're 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 count if we're we're determining what they understood to be really important or mm. scripture on that basis, then you have to also include Jubilees. They have many copies of the Book of Jubilees. You have to include all these other texts too. Um, so, and then on that same, it gets uncomfortable because if you you go by the sheer numbers. They have way more copies of the books of Enoch than they did of the books <laughs> of Ecclesiastes or the book of um, Chronicles or yeah. First Kings, you know, or Second Kings. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, that's that's one way. Uh, another way that scholars have liked to to to. Um, used to determine what was most important to them is what were they among their own literature that they were writing most of it was was uh um informed by uh the text of the hebrew bible so connected one way or another to uh individual figures individual texts themes that appear within the hebrew bible so scholars have looked and said well, when they actually quote um, biblical, like when they quote a text, maybe that means that it's, it's authoritative. If they're citing a piece of literature um, mm. and then commenting upon it, that's, that's an indication that it could be authoritative. And in that respect, yes. Then we have, you know, uh, Book of Isaiah, Book of Deuteronomy, Book of Exodus. Um, but then also... The Book of Jubilees, um, the Jeremiah, or sorry, the um, uh, uh, the books of Enoch uh, also factor into this picture. It's a it's kind of a complicated mess in terms of of deciding uh, what's in and what's out in terms of uh, of the the value and and the sacredness that's attached to these individual pieces of literature. But then I have a tendency to think also that scholars don't always see um, 
and just modern people don't always see things uh, clearly, or or we we like to we like to 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 see things through our own modern eyes, our own perspective. Um, so maybe we're just wrong about connecting uh, the citation of a particular text to its authoritative status. I did a lot of my PhD work in a very, very interesting uh, text known as the Apocryphon of Jeremiah. This is a title that was made up by modern scholars for a collection of manuscripts, which all preserve the same composition. Uh, and this is a, this is a retelling of the life and prophecies of Jeremiah. Um, we, there's so much we don't know about what's going on in this text, except that mm. Jeremiah seems to be making prophecies about uh, the Hasmonean period, very similar to what's in the book of Daniel, but it's very clearly being delivered by Jeremiah. Uh, because the manuscripts are super fragmentary, it's, it's difficult to... Quiet, Alexa. Sorry about that. <laughs> because all the no manuscripts... Worries. Oh, jeez. <laughs> all the manuscripts are fragmentary. Um, there's, there's open discussion and debate about, you know, how even to, to arrange them and what order uh, to put the individual fragments in. And I've made an argument in uh, the book that I wrote about these particular manuscripts that one of the ways in which you can arrange these manuscripts, and I do this through uh, judging just the physical remains and the damage patterns and using, you know, math and and science that, that, that we apply uh. to uh, the fragments in an effort to reconstruct them. But I made an argument to suggest that when you, when you lay them out and you, and you organize them in this fashion, it actually kind of looks like this text could be a, like a new version, a new form of Jeremiah Baruch where because, you know, within the Septuagint, uh, this is the Greek translation of um, of the Old Testament. Within the Septuagint, there's a a very different form of the Book of Jeremiah compared to right, right, right the form of the Book of Jeremiah that appears in our English Bibles. Mm -hmm. Followed directly by this particular version of the Book of Jeremiah is the Book of Baruch. Um, the argument that I make in my book is that these fragments look like they could be a competing version of that. It's a form, it's the same form of Jeremiah that you see in the Septuagint in terms of its arrangement. But instead of the Book of Baruch, uh, there's now this uh, really wild, apocalyptic um, vision, prediction of of hmm. uh the future and when you judge this from a theological perspective mm -hmm. you can make some sense of it too because one of the things that's that's um um one of the things that uh, is characteristic of the book of baruch the book of the Bar of, of baruch was was probably written in the fourth or the third century uh bc and one of the characteristic features of it is that it's very um 
obviously not apocalyptic. Um, it is, it, it has the, the message of the book of Baruch is, is basically very similar to it's, it's a type of wisdom text similar to the book of Proverbs or to the book of Ben Sirah, which was very popular around the same, around the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. But it reflects sort of a different, a different situation, a different cultural social milieu. Um, the Apocryphon of Jeremiah is not that <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> quite different. Um, so yes, I've talked a lot. I'm sorry. Sure. Um, but you, you've got more to more to talk about. So, uh, you, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a specific Isaiah text that, you know, are very, very, very similar. And then you talked in your videos about there's, at least a couple Isaiah texts that are very different or they have extra words mm. or something like that. Could you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So um, now the second video that I, in my series is all about uh, two manuscripts of Isaiah that were found in the first cave. Um, one of them is easily the most famous of all the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this has a lot to do with just the history of the discovery, right? It was one of the first manuscripts to be discovered. Mm. It was the first manuscript to be identified. Uh, it caused an absolute sensation when they found it. And in many respects, the discovery of this manuscript, which is called the Great Isaiah Scroll, and it's on permanent display, or I should say a replica of it is on permanent display at the Shrine of the Book in the Israel Museum uh, in Jerusalem. And as an aside, I have been privileged to actually spend several days working on the Great Isaiah Scroll, the, the actual uh, Great Isaiah Scrolls, with the two scholars who published it, Eugene Ulrich and, and Peter Flint. Um, but it, it was such a sensational discovery because this is a completely intact copy from start to finish of the book of Isaiah that dates back to, at, at the time they dated it to about 150 uh, BCE, which was mm -hmm. astonishing um, when it was discovered, mm -hmm. given that, you know, th there was nothing even close to it yep. that, that was that old. Um, I think it's, it probably more, more accurately dates to about 100 uh, BCE. And there's, more recent work that's been done on that but it, it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that this is an Im immensely uh impressive incredibly important discovery one of the things that um that you hear about this particular manuscript is that it matches up almost perfectly with the masoretic text which is not true huh. um <laughs> there's another manuscript um also found in cave one uh, also a copy of Isaiah, uh, also more fragmentary. It's not complete, but there's certainly enough there that scholars have been able to get a, a strong sense of what the text looks like. And the text in that manuscript is a little bit later. It dates to about 50, uh, maybe 50 BC or right around the turn of the era. Um, so like one or zero. No, there was no zero, year zero, was there? <laughs> so like year one, uh, BC or CE. Uh, so, um, the uh, but 
this particular manuscript is very, very close to the Masoretic text version hmm. of the book of Isaiah. Um, there are only about 180 textual variants within this entire manuscript. And I think the book of Isaiah represents about 45,000 words. Um, I think it's about that. Might be a little bit less. Might be 40-ish. Um, so... 186 textual variants out of, you know, like 40,000. That's really impressive. Uh, but it is very different from the situation with the Great Isaiah School. The really famous one actually has over 2,600 uh, variants from wow. the Masoretic text. Now, most of these are just matters of spelling convention and um, minor minor bits of detail, uh, but not all of them. Some of them are actually quite significant. One of the things that, that we recognize of this particular manuscript, I, I really, really love this particular manuscript. It's easy to love it because it's complete. It's nice working with, uh, with complete manuscripts that have been yeah. perfectly preserved. But one of the things that we see within this particular manuscript of Isaiah is that... Um, it was it was composed in two halves so chapters one through 33 are all uh written by the same scribe uh and then when you get to chapter 33 it's the end of a sheet uh manuscripts are made of individual uh hides of letter that are you know stitched together after they've been written on um each skin usually contains three or four columns of text and then they're stitched together. So this uh, chapter 33 appears and it ends at the end of a sheet. And then at the bottom are three empty lines, which is very interesting because among all the copies of the Dead Sea Scrolls that we have, among all the copies of all the Jewish manuscripts from this period that we have, these blank lines at the end of a text indicate only one thing and it's always the same thing and that's the end of a book of a composition and here it appears at the end of isaiah chapter 33 and then uh isaiah chapter 34 begins on a new skin it's been stitched on to to uh this this you know, to, to the, the sheet containing Isaiah chapter 33. But now, uh, the text from Isaiah chapter 34 all the way through to the end becomes really, really different uh, from what's in the first half of this book. And uh, there was an article that was written uh, probably about a decade ago now, which very uh, convincingly, cleverly demonstrated that one of the key reasons for the dramatic difference of this second half is that it was actually copied from an entirely different manuscript as that first half of 1Q Isaiah A. And we also know that the manuscript from which it was copied was damaged at the bottom so that, you know, parts of it were missing altogether. And the reason we know this is because the scribe would be writing and then he'd come to the end of 
a line or the end of a sentence and he'd leave like a blank space and then pick up uh you know a verse or two later and it, this this blank space kind of repeats itself uh consistently in the same you know in in inter, in the same interval so you know you can imagine a scribe reading from his text and then the bottom is worn away and he doesn't know what's there so he leaves blank space because he knows there's something there i can't tell what's there um <laughs> but i'm i'm just gonna leave it blank and maybe i will come back or somebody else will come back with a better copy and we'll be able to fill that in uh now the really amazing thing here is that uh, that's the pattern, but there are a few places within this in this particular manuscript where the scribe was brave enough to actually say, oh, I know what this text is from memory, and I'm going to fill it in myself because without consulting, because it's all, you know, I, I have nothing to consult, but I remember what this text is, so I'm going to fill it in. And within that that section, there's like an actual, like a gloss or a paraphrase that mm -hmm. is why, like, it's, it's the same gist <laughs> of the text from Isaiah, but there's clearly enough differences in there that, and, and they don't align with any previously known text so scholars look at that and go oh yeah he's just he's just writing this off the top of his head this is from memory and he's making mistakes along the way because you know human memory right sure. it's a fascinating manuscript um because i think it illustrates a couple of things one of the things it illustrates is i you know this this bisection between the two halves of Isaiah, I think is really significant. Scholars have talked for a long time about Isaiah having been composed over a long period of time. We talk about first Isaiah, which was written back in the, uh, in the eighth century. And then second Isaiah, which was written in the, in the uh, post-exilic period or in the, in the exilic period and third Isaiah written in the post-exilic period. Here within this manuscript of Isaiah, we see, although it's not um, it, the the uh, the divisions between where one book begin ends and the next one begins are not quite the same. You can clearly see that at this period of time in the first century BC, these people understood that the Book of Isaiah was not a single composition that it was at least two um, separate compositions, uh, a first Isaiah and a second Isaiah, if wow. you will, which I think is really exciting. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that I think, I think it, it shows us is just um, this idea that we have of scribes being, you know, robotically automatically committed to yeah. uh the text that they're reading you know the scribe who wrote the second half of this manuscript was like filling stuff in from memory from just off the top of his head based on what he thought should be there 
right? So um, scribes were scribes were authors. They were writers. They were contributors to the um, the authorial process when it comes to all of these texts, whether it's biblical or 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 not. Mm. They they had this the same approach. Yeah. So what do you think about, uh, I, I interviewed uh, Dr. James Vanderkam a while back. Oh, wow. You know, scholar on Jubilees. And nice. that was really, really, really interesting because it's basically, you know, you know, Genesis and Exodus, maybe more than that, um, but basically like a retelling. And, and it says that it like came from God or an angel. And it's like, yeah. you know, this is definitely inspired. But then it's like, it clearly isn't like the previous one. <laughs> you know, very, very different. And there's all kinds of different ideas. And it's like kind of crazy. It's like, what in the world was this person thinking? So like, what do you think is, is going on in the, the, these people's heads that they feel comfortable to, I guess, rewrite what we can only assume is they thought was an ancient, you know, ancient inspired text yeah yeah um don't know how i feel about that word inspired yeah uh, but but we'll run with it uh well, they, but so you don't think that they thought they it was inspired uh, or you not know... N not in the same way that we think that we think about uh, that word right like i think okay. So one of the, one of the things there's a very I'll recommend to you um, a book that I just recently read uh, by Molly Zahn genres of rewriting in Second Temple Judaism scribal composition and transmission it's a Cambridge publication so it's probably pretty expensive um, but if you can get a hold of it I would I would encourage you to take a look at it um, so she basically goes through. All the literature um, from Qumran and comparing it with with some of these things that we knew beforehand, like the books of Enoch and Jubilees and, mm. um, uh, uh, sorry, the Samaritan Pentateuch, um, the Septuagint versions of uh, Jeremiah or Exodus or Daniel. You know, all we we have multiple versions of many of these different types of texts, and it raises questions about what people are thinking about and how they understood um this idea of authority or scripture or mm -hmm. excuse me inspiration um i really like where uh molly ends up in her book she basically concludes after going through all the data by mm -hmm. saying you know one of the things that we need to pay much closer attention to is how much just the very act and the process of writing within the minds of the people who wrote and collected this literature plays into this idea of authority and inspiration. Um, it's easy for us to forget that at the time, for many, many people uh, in antiquity, there was thought to be like a numinous quality or almost a magical divine quality to writing just the act of writing to literature and this is mm. a bit of a product of the fact that very very few people can read 
So it all looks like magic yeah. to these people, right? So factor <laughs> that into uh, this massive production of literature. And one of the things that, that Molly Zahn says correctly, I believe, is that by virtue of actually writing uh, and making these, in some cases, really sensationally elaborate compositions like the Book of Jubilees, um, I'm currently spending some time on another one, an Aramaic uh, rewriting of the Book of Genesis called the Genesis Apocryphon. This is for an upcoming video. Um, just sensationally inventive creative um uh ideas about what's going on i guess behind the text mm -hmm. uh what what people imagine should be <laughs> in the text mm -hmm. and we need to recognize that that's in their minds i think this is part of it right like inspiration and inspired text is not just the source. It's the product as well. By virtue of the fact that we're writing this stuff down, mm -hmm. we, are, we are basically contributing to the extension or the preservation of the word of God. Um. You know, and there, there's this is a and this is a this is a complicated, this is an ongoing uh, discussion within sure. within research about the scrolls, within research about early Judaism, and various scholars have arrived at different ideas about this. Um, Sidney White Crawford was one of the first to to really connect the idea of making these these elaborate rewritten Bible types of texts to a particular form of scribal practice. Um, and uh, you, Daniel Falk, no, not, not David Falk. Uh, Daniel, Daniel Falk, who teaches at um, um, uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, he wrote a book uh, where he talked about uh, this type of literature as, parts of, as part of a strategy of extending what he calls extending scripture. So the idea here is that um, we have these ancient texts mm -hmm. and clearly there is some dissatisfaction with the limitations of the original text. <laughs> In the same sense that we continue to have dissatisfactions about the limitations of the original text, they don't answer all the questions that we have with regards to them. Yeah. So the the way to the way for these people to resolve that difficulty was to basically fill in the gaps and uh, rewrite the text in the way that they thought it should have been written, and then they employed these. They, they you identified uh, you know a a scribal literary device as a means to make sure that you took the text seriously. The Book of Jubilees is attributed to the golden plates that were delivered by the angel in heaven to Moses, right? This is, this is, you know, this is a claim of authority that seems to supersede or even overwrite just general revelation of Moses. Um, 
there's another manuscript among the Dead Sea Scrolls that was discovered in Cave 11. It's the largest of all the scrolls. This is uh, commonly called the Temple Scroll. It uh, it measures like uh, I think it's it's 60 feet long. It's massive. It's huge, uh, and it's not even complete. Like we're missing we're missing the first. I don't know how much of it, but we're we're we don't have the beginning of uh, of this manuscript. Um, the uh, the Temple Scroll is this. Uh, it's this elaborate. Um, collection of instructions with regards to the construction of the new ideal temple which was supposed to replace the temple of herod the the corrupted temple of of herod um it includes all sorts of uh of uh laws about the proper um the proper officiation the the proper uh the proper service of the new temple, the sacrifices and the rituals. Um, and within there is just rewritten sections from like the books of Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy. Now the, the key thing with the temple scroll is all of this is written in the first person, but all of it is then also, attributed to Yahweh himself. So this isn't even a, this isn't even the angel of the presence writing. Uh, this is God. God this uh, is God's Torah. These are my instructions to oh. you about my temple and my sacrifices that I'm giving to this schlup Moses here. And and uh but this is me. I'm I am telling you what's going on here. And, and the writer of this manuscript has gone through um, all of these texts from, from Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and basically rewritten them from the perspective of God himself. I mean, you don't get that, that, that's a power play that, that you just, yeah. you know, that that's, that's it. Right. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's Yahweh's Torah. <laughs> it's not even a mosaic Torah. So, well, um, that's dictation. That's, that's, yeah, dic that's, that's dictation. That's dictation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah. So I don't know, uh, this, this whole, this whole topic really excites me. Um, just because I think, uh, the, the field is wide open within yeah. early Judaism in terms of how we understand uh, even what they understood scripture to be and then how they used it. Yeah. Um, you know, they clearly understood that it was incredibly important. Otherwise they wouldn't expend the energy that they did to, um, to make it uh, meaningful and relevant for them, which is why they ended up rewriting huge sections of it because as i mentioned before there's all sorts of questions that you know the the torah just doesn't address because mm -hmm. it's already at that point centuries of years old hmm. is that a term centuries of years or is it it's already centuries old i don't know can you have centuries <laughs> of years? sorry uh 
That's like uh, tens of tens of years old. Yeah. <laughs> that's a phrase, right? Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So let's see if there's anything else I got for you. Um, all right. I want to ask this incoherent question. You, oh, you basically yeah. answered it. <laughs> but I, was this the I incoherent want... question that you sent yes. me? Yes, I said okay. an incoherent question, and I said, I know this is an incoherent question, but I would like to ask it anyways. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so how close are we to the original text? Oh, what we have today? That's a much more coherent question. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand. Yeah, I had a hard time understanding. So, wow. How close are we to the original text? <laughs> that's problematic because right away you have to everybody has to agree on what the original text is right before we can decide how close yeah. we are to it now and and this is a problem because um so scholars uh, so what are we talking about here scholars are in almost universal agreement that um the torah of moses wasn't written by moses that it was compiled from various sources, whether you subscribe to something like the documentary hypothesis or something like the supplementary hypothesis or the fragmentary hypothesis or the two source hypothesis with regards to the first five books of Moses, uh, scholarly consensus is that this is a later product that was compiled from various earlier sources. So, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about that product that was compiled from the earlier sources? Or are we talking about the earlier sources? And it's not just with the Torah either. Are we talking about the um, Septuagint form of Jeremiah, which is 12% mm -hmm. shorter than the Masoretic form of Jeremiah and in a dramatically different arrangement, which scholars are also in general agreement about as an earlier version of the book of Jeremiah, or are we talking about the scroll that uh, Jeremiah read before King Jehoiakim uh, that the king then destroyed and which the scribe Baruch had to rewrite? Oh, and by the way, when he rewrote it, the book of Jeremiah says that he added a whole bunch of stuff to it on <laughs> this second version. So uh -huh. I hope uh you know there's there's scholars have identified redactional layers in in the book of ezekiel they've identified redaction mm -hmm. or or sections of the books of proverbs that the book of proverbs that they think uh developed over time i've already talked about the book of isaiah uh the book of psalms is just a huge mess all on its own um these are individual uh, smaller collections that were put together and collected over a longer period of time. So right away, the question's problematic. When it yeah. comes to the original text, we don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> um, so uh, here's the other part of the problem. Um, the We have a manuscript problem. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are amazing because... They provide for us a window into this critical period of time, uh, you know, first century BC, maybe second second century BCE, um, 
through to the first century CE. But this is, you know, from, from most perspectives, this is already many years removed from the completion of most of uh, the books of the Bible. And we have nothing, nothing at all prior to that. What we do have among the Dead Sea Scrolls, among other uh, collections of, of texts that are quite a bit later, is a sense that um, there were these competing versions of the text that were um, promoted and propagated by individual uh, sects of Jews. Um, you know, the Samaritan Pentateuch is a version of the Torah that is connected to the Samaritan Jews who worshipped Yahweh on Mount, Gaza on Mount Gerazim before, uh, well, before they were uh, uh, decimated by, um, was it uh, Aristobulus, I think, or John Hyrcanus in, uh, in and around 120. So, we have these competing claims to the right text already in this period to say nothing of, of, you know, the, the distant past and what, what preceded it. Um, I've often, I've often told people that when it comes to, when it comes to the biblical text and when it comes to really the history of uh, Judaism, uh, we can go back to around the mid-early Hellenistic period, maybe as far back as the, the late Persian period, so around mm -hmm. 400, and we can have a reasonably good sense of what people were thinking, maybe some of the things that we were writing down, but then we have this black box hmm. that was created as a result of the uh, Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem mm. in the sixth century, which destroyed everything. Huh. Um, and as a result of that, there's just, we don't have any way to connect the material evidence that we have mm. to what preceded it. So yeah. this is obviously an incredibly unsatisfying answer um, because I think the question is, the question's too big. Um, it's so big, in fact, that textual critics of the Hebrew Bible have all but abandoned any hope of finding the original text just because yeah. of all these attendant problems that, that come with it. But on the other hand, I would, I would say I think it's a misguided search just because I think for the people um who wrote the manuscripts that we do have the very idea of an original text just wasn't a big deal hmm. they seem to have one of the thing another one of the remarkable things that i think people need to understand about the dead sea scrolls is there's copies of there's 22 copies of the book of isaiah there's six copies of the book of jeremiah there's 32 copies of various psalms there's you know i think uh 20 20 some copies of the books of book of Genesis, virtually all of them are different in one way or another. Some of them are dramatically different. This didn't seem to bother them. They didn't care. 
about the differences. For them, all of it was incredibly important. And I I think there's a lesson in there. Yeah. You know, yeah, that it's really interesting. for them, right? I I don't know if they even if if you asked somebody if you asked somebody who was living at Qumran in the first century BC, uh, you know, what the original text was, he would have he he would have he would have asked you what the hell you're talking about. Because it's just not something that I think they cared about. But then they cared so much about the um the life of the text mm -hmm. and the uh the usefulness of the text that's what was important was that the text uh is something that that we can use and that we can uh depend on and sometimes that meant you know, preserving all sorts of various versions of the same thing. Mm. Yeah. The the question why I think it was a convoluted question to begin with was because I was struggling because most people when they even think of the original text, they they realize that a lot of the biblical text had edits to it. I mean obviously Moses didn't write that he that you know he, he died. The the you know even the most fundamentalist Christians have some view of edits going on, so right. um, so the, you know that's why it's like a really weird question. It's like you know what is original? What does that even mean? So um, what about and I, you know I don't want to take too much of your time, but what about like canonized? Like th is there even a point mm. that you can discern where there's like a canonization of scripture? So I've talked a little bit about. Um... I think what you can say is, is that there are, you can talk, maybe you can talk about, I, I, the word is, the word is a, is, is difficult because it's very much a, a, a Christian idea, right? <laughs> okay. And I have, I, the, the idea that you're going to, uh, delimit, um, your collection is mm. even, it's not even something that, uh, you know, it's been suggested that the Council of Jamnia in and around the 90s, I think it was 92 or 96, uh, was this this rabbinic council after the, uh, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in an effort to consolidate. Uh, um, sorry, just looking at my email. Um, in an effort to consolidate uh, Jewish ideas um, and it's thought that that they they ruled on what's in and what's out, but they didn't really. I mean, it's the even even within uh, Judaism, I would say medieval Judaism, you still have an idea of um, levels or circles of authority, you know, that start the Torahs at the center. The prophets are the, the next most important. The writings are the next most important. Then on top of that, you've got the Mishnah. And then you've got the Palestinian Talmud. And then you've got the Babylonian Talmud. And then you've got piles of... So there, there's, there's sacred literature that persists for centuries hmm. um, after the supposed closing of the canon. 
I think I I don't and and I would say too I my understanding I don't know a lot about uh, about early Christianity, um, but my understanding is that this idea of even uh, putting limitations on our collections of texts, deciding what's in and out is it's mostly a reactionary activity. And what I mean by that is it's responding to a problem. Um, so I, I think from that perspective, we need to, we need to think carefully about how we feel of this, how we feel about this idea of, uh, of what's in and what's out by gaining a clear sense of, of, you know, why somebody even decided it was important to make this decision. Um, I don't like the idea. I don't like the word um, applied to the period. Um, you know, the the pre uh, the the second temple period. Something that uh, that people also um, tend to neglect is just uh, the importance relative to the text of the temple itself. Jude. You know, Israelite religion and then the earliest forms of Judaism were a temple religion. The mm -hmm. focus of the religion was on the the sacrifices and the calendar and, mm -hmm. you know, the system. It was all centered around whatever was happening in the temple in Jerusalem or the temple in Leontopolis. But that's another, another story. Uh, so... Um, because of that, they don't have the same uh, fixation or focus on the text that they do on the rituals. Um, so in this period in time, it does make sense that they're not even asking these same questions about what's in or what's out. I would say that it's all in. Um if there's a canon, everything's in it. You know, in terms of in terms of literary output, if you're if you're copying a text, something, and maybe and maybe that's the best best judge. Um, these are all copies. What we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls are all copies of literature of texts that were already written down. They're just you know, writing them down again because they think they're important. They think they need mm. to keep them. Mm. Um, that's, that's a basic definition of scripture in this period. Uh, and it's different from, you know, the, the, we, we have these two types of texts uh, that come out of um, the region, uh, mm. Palestine in, in, in this period, we have literary texts and we have uh, documents, letters, uh, bills of sale, uh, contracts, these lists, these sorts of things. So those those are clearly not the same kind of writing that people are doing when they decide that they need to copy a text, because that's a that that's a huge investment in the first place too. 
it was exp it was incredibly expensive just to amass the resources in order to to write or to pay someone to write out a text that you wanted written was very very expensive mm -hmm. um so in that respect anytime one of these texts is copied i think is is a is a testament to its status and i have no way that i'm confident in of um differentiating uh levels of authority or status in this period it's too hard um there's too many different ways that you can uh use to evaluate what people thought was authoritative versus what yeah. they didn't um i think the simplest way is is just you know if they're copying something obviously they need it badly enough to to, to write to expend the resources to write it down or have it written down but that, that was a scroll the that, temple was, scroll yeah that definitely <laughs> inspired by god right <laughs> right it, it says so right in there it's it's right there so yeah that was a very roundabout way of <laughs> answering uh your much clearer but no less difficult question <laughs> Oh uh, no, this has been awesome. Really appreciate this. Um, you did yeah. mention that the Dead Sea Scroll is little is, is like I guess the oldest. So you do you not or do you think that the the Kitaf Hinnom scrolls is oh, that Yeah. Is is that and I know there's like a debate whether that's even an original Isaiah, right? It's Leviticus. Sorry, numbers. Leviticus, okay. It's the priestly it's the um it's the priestly blessing from numbers. So these are a to I think this is a totally different animal. Um, and I, I'm excited about these because what the Katif and Gnome scrolls are are amulets. They're not they're not like copies of text. They have text written on them, mm -hmm. but for a completely different purpose. Uh, something that people did in antiquity because of this idea that they had concerning the numinous quality of just writing mm -hmm. um it's magic uh in antiquity one of the things that they did was they would write they would write stuff or they would have stuff written mm -hmm. and it would never it was never intended to be read uh it was magic it was you know a protection against illness or a protection against evil spirits or it was it was some sort of votive. Um, the the term that that I use when I write about this kind of stuff is it's a potropaic. Um, it it has it has a a special uh, unseen magical spiritual quality to it by virtue of the fact that it's written down. I think that's what the Katifan uh, the Katifano amulets are. They were written on silver they're mm -hmm. hard to read because you know they were written on silver they're incredibly <laughs> small and they were rolled up you don't they i mean here's the process you beat out these tiny little sheets of silver you uh -huh. write you scrawl 
what you want written on them, then you roll it up. You're not going to unroll it so you can, it, it's, and then you probably wear it on a necklace or, you know, in a pocket or something because the function of it is to provide some sort of protection. Hmm. So I think what's particularly interesting about these, um, you'll hear people talk about these as the earliest copies of biblical texts. In one sense, yes, that's true. They are texts that appear within the Bible. But importantly, these are very specific, very small fragments of text from, you know, within this larger collection. I tend to think that the priestly blessing, what appears in Numbers chapter 23, what appears on the Katifanom amulets, which, by the way, don't align perfectly, either of them, with what's in Numbers chapter 23. There's, there's important differences. Um, I think that this was just a well-known blessing uh, that is very, very ancient, which eventually made its way into the text, mm. um, but probably had a life long before it was ever you know, collected in the Book of yeah. Numbers. And maybe that's what we're looking at here at um, in the Katifanom Amulets, which if if your audience does know doesn't know, these date all the way back to the um uh the sixth, I think the sixth century. Uh sixth or seventh. This this Six random yeah, this random website that cites Josh McDowell, which Oh, of course. Yeah. Well he would know. Uh, yeah, definitely. So yeah, seventh century. <laughs> yeah. So um. <laughs> this is, you know, to the time of Josiah, which is amazing, right? Um, that's exciting. But it also, uh, what, what it means is that this is a text that's super ancient. This particular mm -hmm. blessing is super ancient. Yeah. What it doesn't mean is that somebody pulled out their copy of the book of Numbers <laughs> and then copied from that onto this little amulet. It seems more likely to me that it goes in the other direction. Fascinating. That, uh, you know, yeah. what we have in the Hebrew Bible are these, is the preservation of these fragments of tradition through the same process that we've already been discussing. Um, people are writing this stuff down because they think it's super important uh, in the process of writing this stuff down, they're also making major significant changes to it in order to keep it relevant. Yeah. It's the same thing. You just extrapolate that back uh, earlier than we have actual manuscript evidence for Fascinating. You know, the process. So Awesome stuff. All right. Thank you so much for coming on here. It's yeah, been a pleasure. absolutely. And I it's really been fun. talking to you. Awesome. Me too. And, um, you know, everybody check out dr davis's channel here the doctor it's just dr kip davis right it's or just davis. it's just kip davis yeah it's it's there, just my name yeah. cool so, <laughs> if you're really brave if you're really mm -hmm. brave i also have uh i have a course um uh where i'm determined to uh uh to to turn everybody into a bunch of pagans uh over oh. at uh, mvp courses so cool we'll put uh, that in the, yeah. in the description too Sweet. Yeah, sure. <laughs> awesome. All right. Yeah. Cool. Anyways, awesome. Awesome coming on here. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Definitely have to have you back here sometime. Um, otherwise, um, thank you so much for Absolutely. coming on. And I hope you have a great rest of your night. Yeah. You too, man.
Thank you. All right.